there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black indigenous and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Hey friends, today I'm very fortunate to be talking to my friend, Chelsea Protulipak. Chelsea is a geologist professionally, but she's a dog nerd all the other times. So she's most strongly influenced by hazard reinforcement-based competitive obedience, as well as bite sports. Um, But she also does agility, retriever training, nose work, basically all the things when it comes to training. Um, She's interested in excellent, efficient training, which you guys know I'm also interested in. And she's also really interested in, you know, how that coincides with how our dogs feel about all these silly games that we're asking them to play. And today, Chelsea's here to talk to me about proofing, which is a favorite topic um, of both of ours, although a complicated one. So we're going to try to We'll try to stay on track. <laughs> we'll try not to talk for three hours, but, but uh, you know, we'll see. So Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so, so honored to be here. Um, I consider you one of the smartest voices in this field and I've learned so much from you. So it's really, really exciting to be talking to you today. Well, I'm very flattered by that, Chelsea, because you are an excellent trainer and I love watching you train. So any oh, chance thanks. I get to watch you or talk to you about it, I just love it. So Let's dive into proofing. How would you personally define it? Because we have to do that. I mean, if you Google it, you get all kinds of things about, you know, paint, 
right paint and things like that so this is kind of one of those made up words by trainers so that means we have to define it so what do you think it is right i mean beyond what like the old obedience trainers used to call it i mean i see it as a a process and i define it by what i'm trying to accomplish by it so when i think of proofing in dog training i'm thinking about the process of introducing a complexity to a behavior that I've trained with this idea that I want to make it more robust and resilient and ultimately more likely to occur in response to my trained cues when I want to call upon it. And I think we've talked about this before, and I really like Hannah's definition of of proofing, where she calls Mm -hmm. it fluency enhancement, right? So it's taking the steps to make a behavior fluent and that make that response to the cue more fluent. I love that. If you hadn't quoted Hannah, I was going to. So you guys, that's Hannah Brannigan, fellow podcaster. Um, She, I love that she calls it fluency enhancement because for me, I grew up in competitive obedience. So that kind of old school thing that you were talking about a second ago, yeah, you know, that's what I learned. And so I almost have a little PTSD with the word proofing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I mean, we're in a totally different training paradigm now and I love Um, the word fluency because it kind of um, makes me think of language and being fluent in a language and training I see as a conversation so when you increase the fluency it's it's on both sides right it's increasing that the fluency of the conversation between the trainer and the dog learning and responding in that back and forth yes I love the word fluency for that reason as well Um, really I think it helps people to understand what it is that we are ultimately after is if you think about being fluent in a language like you and I are both fluent in English and that's what we're speaking in right now Mm -hmm. we easily flow in and out of words um not all the time and and we we're just we're able to have that conversation reliably most times so right now we're not face-to-face we're talking on the internet um but our fluency shines through. We're still both able to keep talking. And I think that training is like that, like saying, okay, you know, I call it sometimes green eggs and ham training. Like, can you do it in a box? Can you do it with a box? Can you do it? Right. Like just ask the question again and again. And you once told me, and I love, love, love this, that good training and proofing really is like investigative reporting. And I think that's about, the smartest analogy I've ever heard. So can you expand on what you meant when you said that? Sure. So the conversation, the training conversation that we have, it's really about figuring out what are the right questions to ask the dog. And when we're doing that, we're giving a cue and, you know, expecting some sort of response. And I think the most efficient use of our time when we're training our dogs is to ask the questions that, make the dog think and dig in a bit about what they're doing and finding that sweet spot where it's not too easy and we're not asking the dogs dumb questions that they don't have to think about and they're kind of mindless in in their responses. Asking too many easy questions in an interview is pretty much a waste of everyone's time and can even really get annoying. Um, But on the other hand, if you start asking questions that are too hard and you just keep interrogating or drilling who you're interviewing, they're going to shut down and they're going to clam up and offer even less than, you know, what they're even capable of because you've 
shut them down by asking them things that they can't answer. And I think that's akin to overfacing our dogs when we introduce them to things, introduce these complexities to whether they're distractions or challenges. We need to know that they have a capability of answering what we're asking. You know, I think like any interview, you you kind of have to plan in advance what you're going to talk about. And I think there's there's good parallels to planning your dog training session. But as, you know, the conversation goes on, there's this back and forth response where you're gleaning information in your session, just like you would in a conversation. And you're going to adapt based on the responses that you're getting. This back and forth, this is it there's this inherent need to to be responsive and to be adaptive and to pay attention for what you're seeing and what you're getting back from the dog. You also have to have a general idea of what direction you're going, but the real efficient training comes from being adaptive in those questions while you're asking them while you're in the middle of that conversation. And I just feel as though so often that ability to be adaptive in the conversation when you are in it is um, what separates people that I think of as really excellent trainers from people who are maybe struggling a little bit more. Right. And like, I think it takes practice. Like, I mean, you are very professional interviewing, right? But it didn't start out being super easy. It's like a skill that needs to be learned over time and to, to be able to like draw upon, you know, your set of experiences like that, you know, either from, training other dogs or I'm kind of getting too deep into this metaphor now. <laughs> I'm confusing myself. But you, like you, you kind of know what I'm getting at, right? Like it's yes. like you get better at it with practice and you don't have to be perfect as long as you're not driving people or your dog into the ground. Yeah. And I think, you know, we never have to be perfect, right? I think yeah. I release, I release episodes like this where we really get into the nitty gritty. And I think some people who are still struggling with some basics sometimes go, Oh my God, I'm never going to understand it on that level. And in truth, we all only understand it on whatever level that we are currently standing on. And that has to be okay. And continuing yeah. to get in there and ask those questions is how you get better at asking them. Exactly. Exactly. So I would I want to dive into an example if we can um, to help people because I think there's sure. definitely going to be people who are listening who are thinking what do you mean ask questions right, right? like right. What, what questions are we asking I didn't tell you ahead of time to come up with an example but do you have one <laughs> um sure I mean I see the conversation as you you know you're cueing something the dog knows and a cue that you've taught so like we're beyond this like initial cue association skill training so we're cueing the dog to do something we're asking the dog can you do this and then we're adding the if statement right so it's can you do a down signal when there is a person standing three feet away from me and like we can dig into all kinds of approaches on on how to, to, to inter- introduce stuff but it's it's really adding that if statement to your training where you're smart about what that if So even from the very beginnings, like as soon as you have some sort of understanding in, you know, like when you're training a skill, you want pretty much everything to be sterile. So the dog's focused on, you know, moving their bodies or doing the thing that you're, you're focused on teaching. But as soon as you have that understanding, I, we want to be introducing things that are different than the sterile training environment, right? We want to start introducing those neutral generalizations, like that background noise, so the dog can really 
figure out what the relevant cue is, right? So like proofing really starts with those neutral generalizations, right? So it's like, even stuff like if I'm, you know, signaling a dog, like at the hand signal to, to do a down from a stand, like I might even like wiggle my fingers first, like even if like there's no nobody else, like I might do something as simple as wiggle my fingers before I, I raise my hand to cue the down to just to help them discriminate that it's not every little twitch of my muscle that means that that is that cue. So it's, you know, it's it's introducing the background noise so that they can sort out what's relevant. And you guys, and the, you could get on the same page with a dog of what's the, the, the sailing cue supposed to be. Does that make sense? I love that thought. Yes, I love that thought of it as being background noise. And I, because you've said it as background noise, now I can say, and then as I go through the session, I'm essentially turning up the dial on the background noise. So yes. I'm saying, can you still hear me ask you to do whatever it is if I just have this tiny bit of background noise going on? And then what if right. I crank the volume just a little bit? And what if I crank the volume just a little bit more? Exactly. I love I love looking at these these things, these factors as, as dials, because it gives us that control. I mean, it's, it's all, it really is all about, you know, what is the most salient cue? Like that really is what distraction training is all about because, you know, even when we're, you know, get into um, competing motivators, like, you know, the presence of the toy is the cue to go bite the toy. Right. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's all ends up being about cues and we can, sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. No, I can jump on your train of thought because it's yeah. basically, I love, you know, we're, we're just basically coming up with all the great metaphors. Yes. Thinking of it as a dial, then you can say, um, in this circumstance, I'm going to turn up the dial on, say, judge pressure, and I'm going to have this right. person stand a little bit closer to my dog. And to help my dog answer that question, I'm going to go closer to them so that I'm turning down the dial on my distance from the dog. So exactly. that I'm turning up this dial and turning down that dial and then asking the question, right? Right. And then maybe you're working in, you know, a, reg- a training space that is on clean floors and you're not in a very lush, smelly grass area. So you're turning yes. down the smell dial. Like you yes. can break down, you know, every factor that you can think of for your dog. And so, like, I mean, dogs have factors, dogs have dials that they don't care about and you kind of get for free, but it's about finding which dials are most important and then turning everything yeah. else down so you can focus on what's going to have the biggest impact for your dog and what you need to really build with reinforcement for them. And a really great agility example for um, so many of my agility students and my dogs also is that the most salient cue to uh, to most dogs, but especially to something like a border collie, is motion most of the yes. time. So handler yes. motion, right? And so while my dog is learning a tough skill, like maybe weave pulls, I'm going to turn handler motion way, way down so that they can think about that skill. Same with jumping. I'm going to remove handler motion from the picture. And then I'm going to slowly crank the handler motion dial over time so that my dog still understands the job, still understands um, the thing that I'm asking them to do, even though that handler motion dial is now turned way up. Exactly. I think that where the art lies is in incrementally turning that dial, right? So is I think that if we lack kind of the creative juices to really split efficiently or effectively, 
well, we want to do both, but I'm, I'm really thinking effectively. <laughs> that mm. was the word that I wanted. Um, if we are splitting effectively, then we're turning that dial in almost imperceivable amounts. Yes. So I'm thinking about in my car, I have two different controls. I have two different ways to control the volume of the whatever I'm listening to in my car. I have one on the steering wheel that's a button and I have one on the dash that's a dial. The dial is way more sensitive than the button. And yes. so I think I think like early kind of clunky attempts at this, which I certainly do all the time, is me pushing that button up. Right. right. So it's like a jump from this volume to that volume. Right. Whereas what I want to be doing is turning that dial in such tiny amounts at a time that the dog might not even at first perceive that it's happening. Right. And I mean, I, and I think like I don't want to avoid things that are hard because I don't know how to split them. Well, that Sometimes, comes back to that investigative reporting. Yes. Right? Like, you have to ask hard questions. Yes. And, and yeah. sometimes you have to kind of put it out there to know where your dog stands. And yeah. the difference between being, like, being fair about it or being, or, you know, taking too big of a risk for your dog is that in watching your dog's response, if they tell you, uh, no, you need to listen right away. I think, like, you can ask tough questions if you're paying attention to your dog and how they feel about it. Absolutely. Because how do you actually know what the right volume is to start at sometimes, unless you just ask. Yeah. And that's the efficient part, right? Like that's like, you know, there's, there's things you're, you definitely know that are way too hard for your dog. And like, I mean, for your individual dog, and it's going to be different for every dog. There's, there's things that are absolutely off the table, but we need to like, I don't, think it's a good like it's helpful to start where it's too easy either once you know once the like I'm talking about you know you've established some sort of skill set like isn't isn't you know them learning leaves for the first time and you start like throwing a toy in between like holes three and four like this is you know they've established something you need to start making the effort to ask questions and it's not it's not going to be straightforward no matter what yeah and I think that we are highly positively reinforced by our dogs getting it right absolutely a lot of times we go out to that training field and we just practice yes and practicing is not training yes right so just rehearsing a behavior without putting any pressure on that behavior without asking those tough questions you know it's not an investigative interview if you're just asking somebody you know, what street did you grow up on and what's your favorite color? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not gaining anything and whether it's ideally what you want your questions to do is empower the dog for them to, you know, leave a session believing that, yes, I can do this. But the other part that you get is the information on what your dog is capable of before you enter a situation where it's a test where you can't control the dials, right? Like, so in a trial, you can't control all the dials. Right. And I, I think there's too often a big jump between training in a fairly sterile situation and protect being very protective. And then we throw them into a trial and see what happens. And that's not where I want them to experience the hard things. Absolutely. And I think so often that is where they experience the hard things. And, and that's, then they get a they get a bad taste in their mouth about they the do. They do. They yeah. do. And we can't reinforce them as, you know, efficiently as 
appropriately as we would we if can't. we had set that up in training, right? So it's right. it's a, a double hit, really. It is. And it's it's like, okay, you asked me a bunch of questions I didn't know the answer to, and then you didn't reinforce me when I did know the answers, right? right. And oh, that can be... That's kind of your your Cliff Notes version on don't enter your dog too early, <laughs> right? Right, right. Um, so if we're doing this right, okay, so if we are adjusting our dials appropriately to where we are putting pressure on those behaviors so that the dog, so that the behaviors are resilient to pressure because that's mm-hmm. essentially what we're just talking about with the trial environment, you, there's no, the dog does not live long enough for you to actually introduce every single one of those factors and for sure style slowly. Right. So what we're trying to build is an overall kind of generalized fluent behavior. Right. That can stand up to the pressures of the environment. And if we're doing that at an efficient enough speed, we will have errors. Absolutely. And how we handle those errors is really important because Back in the day, I learned that corrections are a vital part of proofing. I learned that if they're not failing and you're not getting corrections in, that you're not doing it right. So let's talk about that a little bit, because obviously you and I both do not hold that mindset. Sure. Absolutely. And this traditional definition of proofing, you know, from our obedience classes from 15, 20 years ago, that sort of thing, was that you command the dog to do something. So it's a completely different conversation that we were having before. It wasn't a conversation. It was a military operation. We say do it and the dog doesn't. And, and, you know, in a proofing exercise, you would introduce something hard so that the dog would fail. And then on purpose, you would purposely, you know, push the dog or push the situation. So the dog would have an incorrect response. And then you would have a correction that typically the dog understood. Otherwise you'd really be wasting your time, but it's, a completely different mindset than how I train now and how you train now. So like the dog has no choice, right? So it's. You're, you're actually spot on because the way that we used to look at it um, was just a completely different mindset. And I think that sometimes when people transition, um, like I have a client who has very recently transitioned from using some pretty high level corrections on her dogs in obedience. And she doesn't want to do it anymore. And one of the most important conversations that we've had so far is about the fact that the way that I train or the way that you Chelsea train is not just the same, but without the corrections, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's a big, big deal that the entire thing is different. Yes. I mean, if, if it's, I tell you to do it and then you do it because you're the dog and I'm the person, then you're left with not much choice other than to use the corrections. It has to be a different conversation from the get-go. Right. And if you think of what actually motivated the dog performing in spite of whatever was happening, it performing was the easier way out of that situation. Like that was the way they got out of pressure. That's the way the pressure turned off. That's the way the, you know, the corrections would go away. And if all we're doing in our training is just deleting that step, it's not really fair um, to expect that the dogs will be prepared in the same way because like this was steps that the trainers would take so that they could handle the things that would happen in the competition environment. So the, like the problem with looking at like a reinforcement approach to training 
if we don't replace this process with another process of making like making sure that they're okay with performing in the face of challenges and performing in the face of competing motivators in a way that fits our communication system we're going to crash and burn in the ring when they actually have to face mm. these things right i absolutely i mean i was taught you know essentially that the dog should be more afraid of you than anything else that's in the environment and so therefore the most salient information will always be coming from you yeah because you're actually the most concerning thing there yeah and i mean ew <laughs> i know that was my thought i'm like can i say that it's like how gross that feels now you know like it's oh that's it's... so distasteful to me now yeah. um time i was like oh okay like that's the goal like all right right, um, right. you know we, like we humans thrive on power right and that was dog treading was about being a power trip it was so yucky. for a lot of people it is and you know we could probably talk about that as another tangent oh yeah <laughs> but um let's get back to they're going to fail they're going to make errors right right so what do you do what do you actually do in that moment and certainly it varies moment to moment but let's say that you you presented a challenge you knew that you were turning that dial up you knew there was a possibility for failure typically we want to be able to bet that they're probably not going to fail i mean i don't turn up that volume to a point where i'm i know the dog's going to fail right i want the the card stacked in my favor but they do fail. Um, I think this whole concept of errorless learning has gotten a little bit messed up in people thinking that that means that the dog never, ever, ever gets it wrong, which is right. never going to be true. So what do we do? What do you actually do when the dog makes an error? So I, I'm going to look at this two ways, even though the response is the same. So if the dog's making a mistake and it's due to something that's neutral, like they like looked away because something you know, it's a person walk by and they look back. Like generally as trainers, we don't get really upset about that. Oh, the dog didn't see the cue. Let's just cue it again. Right. But I think when we run into problems or people run into they're, where they're not sure what to do is when they're working on introducing something that's actually competing for the dog's attention in something that's desirable to the dog, right? Like, so they're using, like, you know, possibly their reinforcers as distractions. And now the dog is, you know, choosing the re to access the reinforcement without, like, instead of responding to the cue, right? Like skipping, skipping the behavior step. In that case, I let them have it. I think there is so much more damage that can be done by building conflict into the dog going like essentially telling you what's more important to them in that moment so there's so much more damage that can be done when you go into block and when you or if you grab the dog and pressure the dog in that way to because because really you're not really you're using the pressure to 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 help them be right so you're not really training with reinforcement anymore you're using a correction exactly using a correction yeah, exactly exactly so and i i know people get upset about that because like well then you're reinforcing the wrong behavior well it wasn't the dog's fault that you overfaced them right and like, i mean you're not going to destroy a huge reinforcement history for your trained cues by the dog ignoring the cue to go get the ball or whatever they did i think what i look for like i mean when we when we start and like i, I don't think we can totally avoid um how can i put this my goal, like when I'm, you know, training with like the reinforcement as distractions, it's, 
it's really about giving them control over how they access it. So they really need, it really needs to be about their, their choices. And I really need to listen about their choices and I want them to, to totally buy in. So if I'm seeing anything that has that in their behavior, like where they're, the, the actual performance of behavior is changing in a way that they're showing me that they're being pressured. So like, let's say like there's a bowl of food on the ground or like on the, the floor and like I'm recalling the dog, they take a wide berth around that. Like that to me is the biggest red flag I can have in proofing training. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think we can, we should segue for a second and talk sure. about, talk about using reinforcers as proofing mechanisms because it's, a it's a really smart way to proof your behaviors and do it early on because to me there's a lot of other pressures that we can add in that might be frightening mm-hmm. might be stressful your reinforcers should never be frightening or stressful exactly and, and ideally you have pretty good control over them because you've taught the dog some good reinforcer skills and I agree with you. If the dog um, does the wrong thing, runs, you know, runs for the reinforcer, like let's say I've got a toy at the end of my weave poles, dog pops out a 10 and grabs their cookie or their whatever. Um, I just laugh it off and go, okay, well, that was obviously too hard. Right, right. Where can I put the reinforcer next time to make sure that you get it right and then continue to increase the volume on that dial as we go? It makes people's heads explode. Exactly. Yeah. For the wrong rep. But what should make your head explode is that dog taking a wide berth around that. Yeah. So to me, did overbase them. So to me, the dog, you know, taking the ball at like popping out the 10th pole is the same as a dog that runs up to the weaves and bucks because their toy is there. It's the mm. same. It's a, It's the same mistake or it's the same situation where it's you've set up something that's too hard and you need to change it absolutely and we don't we don't want this to be stressful and I always say that I want my dogs to show up to training with an attitude of I got this because yes because they always do because I always make sure they win even as I put pressure on those things I think that the mistake is not ever in having an error because those will happen Yes. The mistake is in not changing your actions based on that error. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think for a lot of people in our circle, like in our mutual circle, perfection paralysis is more of a problem than (laughs) drilling, right? Like it's, so like often I find I'm speaking, like I'm speaking to people who are hesitant to turn up the dial because they don't want to overface their dog. That's, that's, you know, that's not the problem that's happening, but the, they end up, you know, kind of sticking on the same plateau a bit longer than they have to because they don't know which dial to turn up or how, or they're afraid of what might happen if they do. I mean, yes, we get stuck on a split so often yeah because we aren't sure how to turn the dial up so that we can get to that next split and I think if we like go back to like the interview analogy not every question in an interview is going to get answered in a good interview like a juicy yeah good interview not every question is going to get answered but it might lead to some better questions that can get answered that might lead to the ideas you know the person being interviewed kind of being able to get to that end concept, that end idea. 
even if they didn't know the the big question when it was first introduced. Yeah, and I I also it's basically the Socratic method, right? So it's basically helping your learner arrive at the conclusion that you want them to arrive at by asking the right questions. Exactly. By saying, and can you do it this way? And what about this? And again, I think people are desperate for real real world examples and I, I think we're really giving it to them but if I return to um, that that example of motion being the most sensitive dial for so many dogs and mm-hmm. that's true in obedience as well as agility um, for when I when I return to that I think about sometimes you just need a little bit of creativity a little bit of cleverness to split because if I go from walking forward to jogging forward and my dog breaks, my dog, you know, can't handle, can't finish the weed poles if I'm jogging, but can if I'm walking, for instance. Um, Finding the actual split between the jog and the walk can be tough and can take a little bit of creativity um, to kind of get there. And you may need to absolutely just do something else totally weird before you try jogging again, right? So like maybe you're walking forward at your fast speed, but now you have um, two PVC bars in your hands, right? And now you're making like, you're just making your motion a little bit more relevant without making it faster, right? So making the hard thing a little bit more relevant without actually making it quote unquote more difficult, I think sometimes that's what people forget. They get really hooked on the challenge is my motion. Therefore, I'm never going to get this because I can't go from a walk to a jog without breaking the dog. Right. There are other little things you can do in there between the walk and the jog. And this is where creativity comes in. And creativity is one of those things that you, if you don't flex it, you lose it. If you don't work on it, you lose it. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean... Often the path is a completely different path, right? Like often it has nothing to do with your gait jogging to walk. It, it, it's like exactly like you said, it's introducing something that's a little bit more than you walking that is going to have their eyes flicker a bit and take their concentration mm-hmm. ever so slightly, right? Like, so, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's, it's almost like there's categories of, to distra- of like ways we can use distractions, right? Like, and I mean, I think... I think this is where cross-training sports can be really, like, interesting. Like, I'm just thinking, like, on the, re- the retriever side of things, like, a lot of what's hard about what the dog has to do, it has to do with the actual environment itself, but it's, like, aspects of the environment, right? Like, it's, like, spatial pressure. It's, like, the dog's tendency to want to run along the shoreline versus to go straight across the water. And, I mean, distractions become hard when they go across, they go against, like, a dog's more intuitive tendencies so ignoring motion for a border collie like swimming you know at a weird angle across the pond for it's 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 going against what the dog would do otherwise without intervention right so figuring out what those are for your dog in your sport right so it's like you need to look at like what what is hard about your the sport that you're or the things that you're trying to train for your dog and, and pull from that, right? Like it's... Yes, I think that um, that's what comes down to, yes, knowing the individual that you're training and then also knowing what might be specifically difficult about what you're asking for this individual. And I see this as an issue when people um, 
sometimes when people switch breeds, so maybe they've done right. a sport with a certain breed for a while and then they want to get something else. And then that new dog throws them curveballs they didn't even know existed because they weren't aware of the fact that before they were training, you know, specifically for this dog that they, that they know, or this breed that they know well. And you are a crazy person who has like drastically different breeds. <laughs> I like the contrast. <laughs> you do. You have, uh, you have duck tollers and also Malinois. So yes. they, um, I mean, you can't really get more night and day than that. And I think that it makes you a, a stronger trainer because you do see that contrast and you do understand what's going to be hard about this for the Malinois versus the Toller. So we've kind of gone through what we do when they get it wrong and it's a reinforcer. We need to talk a little bit about what we do when they get it wrong and the distraction wasn't a reinforcer. So maybe it was a fake judge that we put in the ring, or maybe it was a smell on the grass or, you know, whatever. Or I'm thinking, you know, that one of my big projects right now is scent articles for Iggy. And so... Sometimes she's just going to bring me the wrong one. Sometimes she's just going to indicate the wrong one because that such is life, right? And I have to have a response for that that helps me in the future. And what I was taught originally is to do, you know, there's actually articles are so funny. There's such a deep folklore around articles. So anybody you ask has like a different way of correcting bringing the wrong article back, all of which to me feel very stressful, very stress inducing and not um, helpful to our final project. So for me, basically, if they make an error, my, my go-to is to just ignore it and go into the next rep. I would agree. And it's funny you mentioned articles because it's definitely one of the things where I've dug myself a hole and dug it back out based on my responses to errors. What I've learned from that is the best thing to do is nothing. And I mean, not not in the sense of leaving the dog standing there, but yeah. move on to the next rep. Like it's like the least big deal ever. Yeah. And it just literally making it a non-issue. Exactly. Because when you make it an issue, you actually just create that kind of yuckiness. And we, we always need to be paying attention to how the dog's feeling about the exercise as far as we can tell. Um, and I want, you know, scent articles are something that basically they understand on a level that we can't understand. And so if they get it wrong, I feel like we have to just kind of go, oh, all right, that was interesting. All right. And, you know, take it as information. Yeah. If you if you were trying to change something in that particular rep, then it gives you information about the dial you were turning. But sometimes you weren't. Sometimes it was, it's just the fact that scent always produces different dials being turned up and down and that we can't even see. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly I treat the like like for articles if, if I if they bring back the wrong one I, I treat it like it's contaminated because how do I know that it's not totally I put it I don't put it back in the pile no like I you know and it, it might be something I need to revisit that understanding maybe I need to back up um my foundation training for that exercise but for you know I might I might take it out of the pile and try another rep and if I get another wrong one okay well maybe I need to back up the yeah. bus a bit but if, yeah. if it goes on as normal, it's a pretty good indication to me that 
maybe it was contaminated. I'm not perfect in my handling of, of the articles. So. <laughs> exactly. They all, they all smell like me to a point anyways. So They do, which is actually why I think the exercise is hard. Um, yes, yeah. Is that ev- everything surrounding it is that scent too. Yeah. So that's, it's a very specific kind of weird question that we're asking them. So in that particular instance, I'm just going to remove the article they brought me, send them again. If they get it wrong a second time, and this is kind of my rule, no matter what it is I'm training, I usually stop and move on to something else. I usually don't yes. continue to, um, and that's, I mean, that's been a learned thing because originally I was taught to fight until you get a success. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, end on a good note. Like that's the biggest, yeah. the, the worst myth ever. The worst myth. Honestly, that is how you dig holes. So like that is yes. literally how you break things. The way that you break things is fighting to get that success to end on. Um, when, if the dog makes two mistakes in a row that you, in your mind, they kind of shouldn't have made, it is so best to just shelf it for the day. Oh, yes. And nine times out of 10, when I'm reviewing my video or I'm thinking about it or I'm talking to friends about it, I figure it out. But there's no way that I could have figured it out in that moment. No. And I mean, there's this, like when you're training and and repetition in these loops and stuff, what the dog did in the last thing is going to affect the thing they do next. And Sometimes yes. the smartest thing we can do is put a break there so that we can start fresh, that not from that point of confusion, right? So like that's a, that's a big problem too with like training through errors, so to speak, is that mm-hmm. we're building upon confusion and we, we start kind of losing touch to what's actually relevant to the dog in, in, that, in, that, in that sequence of things because they're, they're trying to put together the whole picture. You know, they, they don't operate like robots in discrete reps. They think about this entire arc yeah. that they've, you've, they've, you've just taken them on. And again, anything that hurts that attitude of I got this is something to be avoided. Absolutely. I mean, skills are easy to train compared to how they feel about them. Like that's... Oh, yes. The like, skill training is the easy part. Yeah. It is maintaining that um, that I got this attitude has to be paramount. And yeah. as you go through with proofing... If you lose that attitude, you you have broken more than you ever could have broken without doing the proofing, right? Or, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just, I think somebody, I can't even credit this quote and it's going to be completely um, butchered probably, but basically said, somebody said, you know, there's nothing, nothing is more important than the dog's attitude. Um, and so if you, like, whether they bring you the right article or not, not as important as the attitude they had when they brought you the thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Um, And I've, you know, I've seen, you know, I remember like one of my best utility runs ever was a failing run because my dog was just, he was so pleased with himself that he raced out to the go on the go outs and like did a spin and bark and then took a jump and flew into front position. He was just like, so pleased um with the entire scenario and I'd fought really really hard for that attitude because he came he was kind of a crossover dog for me so he yeah. came from he came from a lot of not protecting that attitude and I I think it is important to you know yes I want to get a high score and I want to win don't get me wrong but <laughs> if I win with a dog that's not enjoying itself then the win doesn't feel as good and I'm just not interested in that anymore. I think really at this point, the likelihood of my dog doing well and not enjoying themselves, because like that's so intertwined with how they understand things right. now. Like if it's, if it's not, they're not feeling great about it. Like it's not, 
I'm not going to walk away with a cue. Like that's so intertwined at this point. And I think that comes back to kind of this shift in attitudes and the proofing of today versus the proofing of before is that the goal of the proofing before was to make sure you never flunk. Yeah, no matter how the dog felt. It didn't matter. Yes, Yes, no matter how they felt. I actually am recalling a conversation I had in a open stay group back in the, you know, when we all had to leave. Um, Actually, I don't know if you guys still have out of sight stays in Canadian um, obedience, but... They're actually you know, ex- extremely democratic and the, both classics exist. So like the old style open oh, class exists and I, an option to do an extra exercise and not have out of sight sit, sits and downs also exists. How very, how very Canadian. It's so Canadian. I, like it. I love it. <laughs> um, so back, I was, you know, this had to be like 15 years ago now. I'm standing in an out of sight stay blind with the other handlers and there's an auch handler in the group and she's saying she doesn't care how the dog feels. She's saying, I don't care if she's scared. She has mm. to do what I tell her to do. Because somebody's dog had failed signals because the judge scared him, essentially. And that's what she was kind of talking about while we were all standing in the blind. And the Sandler was like, well, that's your mistake. The dog needs to do what you said, whether whether they're scared or not, no matter how they feel. And I remember just having like a pit in my stomach. And I actually... Nobody liked me, but it's fine. I turned to the handler that was talking about her dog getting scared. And I said, you know, for the record, I do care if my Mm -hmm. dog is afraid and it's okay that you care. Yeah. And now just like what you said with this change, with this new paradigm, um, if my dog doesn't have a good attitude, you're right. We are not getting a cue out of that. And we're just not. There's also the structures now where you can get out of Dodge with your dog, like where you can leave the ring. And I have zero shame in doing so. If my dog's not having a good time there, there's no, there's no point in fighting through it. It's going to do absolutely nothing for my long-term goals or short-term or, you know, for my relationship. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I so encourage people to leave the ring more with a more kind of liberal attitude to kind of be like you know what this is not going well I'm going to cut my losses right now because that's the same issue of fighting until you get that success and digging yourself into that hole yeah proofing yeah exactly and it's not in a punishing way it's not in like oh you made a mistake it's not in a sense you're not training anything you're not accomplishing anything you're preserving you're preserving yeah preserving at this point right like it's you know Dogs have yeah, bad it's, days. They, right. It's nothing that's going to come. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing that's coming of this. And bad things potentially could come of this. And right. To preserve my dog's attitude. And that's, you know, that's another question people have. You leave the ring prematurely or you leave a training session. So the dog brings you the wrong article twice in a row or whatever. It's not, okay, well, now you have a timeout. It's not, okay, now we're done now. It's, I use my exact same normal exit ritual. Yeah. 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 From the training session or the ring. So in the training session, my dog will usually get a scatter of food on their station. And that's kind of how we end. So I'm just going to ask her to go to her station. If she brings me the wrong article a second time, I'm going to give her a scatter of food. I'm going to pack up and then we're going to be done. And then in the ring, we're going to go have her jackpot cookies. Absolutely. And have a party because we just went in the ring together and that's worth something. Absolutely. Like, I mean, at at this point, like you're not, you're not confusing you're not anything. Training. It's, it's, you're it's not, not about training, training one way or the other. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There's no connections being made about the mistakes that happened. That's totally not what those cookies are for. 
Exactly. And there's also no connection between the cookies and the success. So it's kind of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's you a know, salary it versus matter. commission, yeah. right? It's like, you know, you'd have a bad day at work and you're still going to get a paycheck. And there's... You still get your paycheck. Exactly. And you, you stop going eventually if you don't, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, that's the same with our dogs. They put themselves out there and tried for you. Mm-hmm. They are owed whatever it is that you promised them in the beginning. And I think that's true in training and it's true in trials. And I think that you and I could go off several more tangents, but let's oh, yeah. go ahead. And, um, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. I think some of the key points um, that you brought up would be you, you referred to giving cues as kind of an if statement. So kind of turning up the dial on those different if statements. So can you do it if this is happening? Can you do it if this is happening? And those are kind of those investigative reporting types of questions um, that I think, I hope helps people to go forward with pushing their own training a little bit further, because I do think lack of effective proofing is one of the bigger problems in the positive reinforcement-based circles because we have to get reliability somehow and this is how but we need to build their confidence somehow we need to show them the things that they're going to see where it's safe and where we can reward them yes and i think you know yeah confidence breeds reliability right so absolutely behavior to be reliable the dog has to know for sure how to do it just like if i were trying to conduct this interview in a language i am not fluent in I would not be confident and I would be stressed and it would not be good. No, I just, um, I'd just be staring at the microphone. Not yeah. like my jaw doesn't work anymore, you know? Absolutely. I even, you know, I did, I did something recently where there was a translator and I was speaking and then I had to stop and then the translator would speak and then a third person would tell me what they said. I mean, it was like, this oh, wow. whole, it was so mind blowing. And I, barely got any points across I think and did you have like a nap after too because like that yes it was exhausting (laughs) Uh, and it was fine and you know hopefully I reached some of those people but um it was it was hard and so when I think about dogs now and I think about them not being fluent and what I'm asking and I'm asking anyway it's um it's tough and we have to respect how hard that is and yes. that's how hard they're working and how hard they're thinking. Yes. And give them soft landings to make mistakes too. Oh, I love that. Perfect. Perfect place to stop. All right, Chelsea, thank you so much. This has been absolutely meaty and juicy and just the kind of training conversation I love to have. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. We've got a few Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Sarah. She says, my five month old border collie puppy has been so lovely in all aspects. He's the first pup that I feel I am meeting his needs in all areas and it's really paying off. About a month ago, he started a new behavior where he pounces in dirt and will flick it behind him and turn in excitement. It's a continuous cycle in which he play barks and entertains himself as if he sees something in the dirt, but has become more invasive because he's doing it more. He will do it in our yard, downtime on a hike, and especially at a campsite. So far, I've only seen him do it this in dirt. Ideally, I would like to see him settle in these circumstances, but that this behavior is highly reinforcing for him. Do I ignore this behavior or start teaching an alternate, an alternate behavior ASAP? Do I chalk it up as a quirky breed behavior or can I curb it now because it's more of a ritual? I've taken videos of him doing this and I'm happy to provide for further clarity. Thank you. I appreciate insight. So I'm going to give a little background. I happen to know Sarah and I know that she um, has had poodles up until now and 
this is her first border collie. And so I am going to say a few things that are border collie specific, and then we'll dive into it as far as like a behavior modification kind of standpoint. Here's the thing. Border collies like to obsess about stuff. They are designed to obsess about stuff and they're designed to be, be very ritualized and pattern focused and, um, they basically, if they find something that is even remotely exciting or fun, they want that thing. They become obsessed with that thing. They very quickly become addicted to that thing. If this were my puppy, I would be taking some measures to have it not happen anymore because I have seen this specific behavior with dirt as well as a similar behavior with grass be detrimental to a dog's agility career because agility happens on dirt um, and grass. So I would be taking some measures to get away from it. However, simply physically stopping him from doing it, probably only going to make him obsess further. So I'd be taking what I call a distant antecedents approach, meaning I'd be trying to provide him other things to obsess about instead. So rather than trying to turn off his obsessive tendencies, which you won't. You want to redirect his obsessive tendencies. So this is a puppy who's telling you it is time now for him to have some more intensive training. And I know that you are taking it slow, providing his needs, being um, taking a really holistic approach, and that's good, and you should not stop doing that. But he needs more brain work. He needs more things to think about and obsess on because he's making those things up on his own. And if he has enough things in his life to think about and obsess on, he'll obsess about this less. And I don't think that the dirt chasing, the dirt thing is going to go away overnight or quickly as he becomes more and more addicted to training, which is why we like this breed. They get addicted to training really fast. He'll be less addicted to those things in his environment. In the moment, um, I don't know exactly what I would do, but my gut is telling me that I would stop the behavior and redirect it. A better response is to stop it before it starts. Okay, we know that. So if you can identify some precursors, like maybe he starts sniffing dirt, you know he's going to do it, or maybe he disengages from the hike, goes off the trail, you know he's going to do it. So try to identify those precursors so that you can redirect on the precursor and not the behavior itself. If the behavior itself begins, um, I would go and interrupt him and just go into a quick little sit down, stand, nose target training session for food before you continue hiking. Um, or I would interrupt him, have him chase you away and then do a food scatter in the grass or something like that. So that's me guessing because I don't have the puppy in front of me and I'm not exactly sure um, exactly what I would do. What you want to be paying attention to is, is the behavior diminishing or not? Is the behavior continuing or and strengthening? Um, or are the things that you're doing helping it to lessen? And so give this a few weeks, Sarah. And if you still are struggling with it, I want you to reach back out to me and let's set up a consultation and figure that out. Okay. This one comes from Ariel. Um, and they say that their little dog, so basically Ariel tells a story about her small dogs, um, being bombarded and basically attacked by a deer. 
Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit of it. This morning on an on-leash walk with three dogs, I found myself being followed very closely by a decidedly off-leash, stiff-postured, hard-eyed young deer. The deer stomped and grunted at us. The Shelties are small and the deer was big, so I blew my whistle a little, but primarily turned away and moved quickly down the path. After about 40 seconds, the deer made a big show of charging past us up a ravine and glowered. Later, when I was not scared of angry hooves crushing the tiny skulls of my dogs, I reflected. And then here are the questions. What does one do when encountering beasts on a trail on leash or off? Do I throw Charlie bears at the deer? What about angry mama goose? Does blasting Metallica really work to scare away cougars? What behavior was the deer really exhibiting? What, if anything, is the best thing to do in this situation? I didn't even remember until the second that I always have my spray shield, but would that be effective? These may not be questions that you already have answers to, but maybe an interesting topic for a guest. So first of all, any wildlife expert is going to say dogs on leash, right? So any wildlife expert and I are already going to have an argument. Um, your dogs were on leash though, and this still happened to you. And this is clearly... I believe kind of defensive behavior um, in some way or perhaps offensive behavior. The deer is saying, you're in my space, you're invading my space, I think. Um, you were certainly kind of accosted by this deer for a reason that you are not necessarily going to know about. What I would recommend is Google will tell you exactly the right response based on what the wildlife is. Um, because the deer left you alone, eventually, that tells me that your actions were not wrong. But also, deer tend not to be as aggressive as, say, a moose. So I can't say that you would have been okay if this was a moose, right? So what I want you to do is, and everybody should do this, um, and I can find some links to put in the show notes as well, Look up the wildlife that you're likely to encounter and what you're supposed to do if you do encounter it so that you're prepared for these moments later. And I will say that um, my partner Leslie recently ran into a deer um, several times in a row, so several days in a row, that also seemed to be aggressive. Not quite what you experienced, but more aggressive than we think of deer being. So could be something going on with the deer, who knows. Um, Generally speaking, based on what the wildlife is, you're, you have two options. You either fight them back or try to get away from them, right? So that's kind of your two options. And depending on what the animal is, dictates which option is better. Certainly carrying something like bear spray, um, rather than spray shield, bear spray sprays farther um, and is more, is more damaging, more yucky um, for the bear. It's more like mace. Than spray shield is so something like bear spray certainly could help you if I had tiny dogs I'd probably pick them up also you had three of them though so that complicates issues you can also get uh, coyote vests for your small dogs so that you feel safer in case the wildlife does approach you I have no idea if Metallica really scares away cougars but I did read that news story and really enjoyed it I have been chased by angry birds before I do find that running away just kind of makes them chase you harder so turning around and fighting them is usually your kind of your best option although it doesn't go very well <laughs> because they're scary um as far as just throwing food at the wildlife I would avoid that um 
I throw food at stray dogs and that's where you got that idea, I think. But um, I would avoid throwing food at wildlife, number one, because it's illegal, but number two, because you run the risk certainly of them then not leaving you alone because they realize that you have food. So I would get really familiar with what the most, with the best recommendations are from the experts based on the wildlife that you are precisely um, likely to encounter. And best of luck, and I'm sorry, that, that's, that's scary. All right, next, questions from Jan. I have a question regarding the Functional Dog Breeding Podcast. Let me preface this by saying I'm a mixed breed kind of girl. So what I'm asking about kennel clubs may be uninformed. And you guys, so that's the episode that I did where I interviewed uh, Dr. Jessica Heckman about her project, the Functional Dog Collaborative. So Jan's question, is the problem of certain breeds becoming inbred restricted to breeds within a country, i.e. are Dalmatians in Europe suffering the same fate as U.S. Dalmatians? Um, and you know, Dalmatian people don't come at me about this. Dalmatians have gone through actually a lot of work to improve a lot of things and it's really exciting. But um, she's just using Dalmatian as an example, I think. So then she goes on to say, would bringing in a Dalmatian from another country to get rid of the bad genes and or diversify the gene pool be more acceptable to those against using a non-Dalmatian to accomplish the same thing? It would still be a purebred, but registered with a different country's kennel club. I'm using Dalmatians in my question, but any breed can be substituted. So see, she doesn't want to attack Dalmatians either. You have a few questions here, and I encourage you to go join the Functional Breeding Facebook group that I linked in Dr. Heckman's episode and ask these questions there also, because you're going to get a more diverse, informed response than what I'm going to give you. So I'm going to tell you what I know but there's certainly more to it than what I know. So what I know is that um, as far as the breed, the problem being restricted to breeds within a country, um, different gene pools in different parts of the world can, can certainly have their own sets of problems. So like the border collies in Australia and New Zealand are pretty different from the border collies in the United States. And so they have different sets of problems, but they're the same breed. And so in that example, using a dog from a different country to diversify your gene pool is a good idea. Um, however, if a problem is due to what we refer to as inbreeding depression, um, which is basically where you've closed your gene pool and when you do that, a bottleneck will occur and you will eventually be stuck with some problems that only outcrossing will allow you to get away from. Uh, border collies don't really have any of those problems aside from maybe noise phobia, noise sensitivity. So certainly sometimes it is a good idea to bring in genes from another country if the genes are diverse from the genes here. But there are certain breeds that the dogs are so tightly related that bringing a dog in from another country doesn't necessarily improve anything. So it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve the breed, the breed that you're working with and probably your access to um, dogs outside of your immediate gene pool. But again, Jan, I recommend that you join that uh, functional dog breeding Facebook group and ask some of these questions there and get a, get a nice conversation going. So thanks you guys for your questions. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. 
If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the Cogdoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron. 